Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.
Hey, folks, today is Friday, November 8th, 2019. Roland Martin Unfiltered broadcasting live from the second annual Life Lux Jazz Experience in Los Cabos, Mexico. Uh, as you see, folks are already assembling. The concert's going to be beginning uh, shortly, but we still got a great show for you, folks. Uh, former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg uh, looks like he may be jumping into the Democratic race. What the hell is he doing? I'm going to explain to you why this is a horrible idea and why I don't think he's actually going to do it. Uh, also on today's show, a new report shows that Maryland has a larger black prison population than any other state. Also, a white restaurant manager who kept a black man with a disability enslaved for more than 20 years is headed to prison. What the hell? Also, Howard University uh, football coach Ron Prince has been placed on administrative leave for abusive behavior. And a recent Washington Post op-ed questions Mayor Pete Buttigieg's claim that black people won't vote for him because he's homophobic. That actually was from a focus group. Is this a real thing or not? Folks, we got a packed show for you. It's time to bring the funk on Roller Mart Unfiltered. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. Hey, folks, Roland Martin here broadcasting live from the second annual Life Lux Jazz Experience in Los Cabos, uh, Mexico. I'm going to step aside right here, and so you'll see, folks, uh, uh, all of the different uh, folks out here, they are assembling. It is an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous day uh, here uh, in Los Cabos, uh, Mexico. Uh, and uh, a number of that, 14 different acts are going to be performing. Uh, Gerald Albright, Kirk Willem, Donnie McClurkin, uh, Incognito. Mark Curry, of course, is going to be the host of this whole deal. And so it's going to be a fantastic weekend. Uh, all the concerts will be live streamed on GFNTV.com. GFNTV.com. It's not too late for you to get your live streaming pass. Simply go to GFNTV.com uh, to get your 1099 live streaming pass. So every concert, all of the concerts, you will be able to actually watch live as it happens here in Los Cabos, Mexico. And so we're certainly glad to be here and glad that they are one of the partners for Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's get on with the news of the day. Former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg last night uh, made the moves to announce that he is going to be filing for the Alabama primary. Uh, of course, Bloomberg uh, has been back and forth, worth $52 billion. Apparently, he thinks that uh, Vice President Joe Biden is fading, which is why he is jumping into the race. Uh, really doesn't make much sense as far as I'm concerned. Let's go to my panel. Amisha Cross, she is political commentator, Democratic strategist, Joseph Williams, senior editor, U.S. News and World Report. Also, Derek Holly, host of Reaching America On Demand podcast. Uh, Joseph, I want to start with you. I've long said that Michael Bloomberg is the Mario Cuomo of politics. Anybody out there who, who has any level of history remembers that Mario Cuomo 
toyed with the idea of higher office, running for president. Then, of course, uh, he toyed with President Bill Clinton when Bill Clinton was going to nominate him to the U.S. Supreme Court. There was an airplane sitting on the tarmac, decided late, no, he's not going to do it. That's Mike Bloomberg. He, he's going to do something, then he's not. Then it's like, well, will he get in? Will he not? This, to me, is too late in the game. The reality is to have him jump in right now is not going to make a damn difference. Look, Tom Steyer, a billionaire, got in. He's still polling at 1%. Joseph, what say you? Well, just what we need, another billionaire from New York running for... I mean, it, the idea on its face is just kind of ridiculous to me because we're not in that position right now. We've already got a billionaire. People are not... They're not receptive to, to, to this sort of idea. Steyer's polling in the basement. Bloomberg, who is his constituency? Who is he looking to lure? Not to mention the fact that if he goes down to South Carolina, I guarantee you people are going to bring up stop and frisk. People are going to bring up some of the other initiatives that he had that were hostile towards blacks and browns in New York. He was the law and order guy. And I saw him at the convention in Philly in uh, 2016. He sounded like he needed to be in Cleveland at the RNC because he was, he was talking about all the things that the, Repub that the Democratic Party didn't need to do. And among those were kind of appeasing or, or going soft and, and nominating somebody like Hillary Clinton. He said the only reason why he was there was because he was her friend. And that's the reason why he was able to diss everybody else. I think it's a bad idea. Amisha Cross, this is very simple. And that is, Mike Bloomberg is a horrible choice to even be a Democratic nominee. The reality, will he appeal to independents? Will he appeal to moderates? Sure. But look at John Huntsman. John Huntsman could have been a great general election uh, candidate, but he couldn't get through the primary. There is no way in hell Mike Bloomberg <laughs> is going to be able to get through the Democratic primary. It's more than just the primaries because it's going to be extremely hard for him to break through um, the rules to actually get on the debate stage. At the end of the day, you have to have a certain level of approval among various um, among various polls, and it, right now he's not doing that well. And I think the part of that is because. The American public is used to him toying with, well, I'm going to get in and I'm not going to get in. He's done it about four times at this point and through various elections. And I think that people are kind of tired of that. Also, more and more voters are pushing against this whole, um, this idea of billionaires basically taking it all and ruling this country. And to have somebody else decide that this is what they're going to do, and to, um, and to your point earlier, I think that part of, the, part of the angst is also that he doesn't necessarily appear as a Democrat. And with a party that continues to grow more and more progressive, that moves away from the center to a certain extent, it's going to be a lot harder for someone who is like him, who I would probably argue is right of moderate at this point, to actually break through and have policies that make sense to a party that is trying to be more inclusive, that is trying to um, push forward in a lot of the policy and economic issues that we've seen create real hurdles for people across this country. Derek Holly, let's be real clear. Uh, I, I, first of all, Donald Trump is not a billionaire. Let's just be real clear with that. He's not. Here's what I appreciate, though, about Republican billionaire, billionaires. What they focus on is what they do. And that is, you take Sheldon Adelson. A Sheldon Allison every year goes, you know what? I'm going to spend 100 to $200 million every four years to elect a Republican. That's what an Allison does. The Koch brothers, that's what they do. Tom Steyer is wasting million. Not great. He's a billionaire. He's wasting $100 million. He's going nowhere. Mike Bloomberg, wasting money. So the reality is this here. Those two could have a much larger impact on this race if Bloomberg says, I'm going to drop $100 million 
uh, on Pats and uh, also to drive turnout in critical places. Styrus says, I'm going to drop $100 million. That's $200 million alone that's separate from what the candidate's going to raise. That's how he should be spending his money, not running for a president, which is a joke. I agree with you that uh, it's probably too late in the game for him to get into it right now uh, for all the reasons that everyone has talked about. But at the same time, um, the Democratic candidates right now, he feels like they're just not meeting the expectations of the voters or the Democratic Party. So, I, again, I don't think it's the right time for him right now, but uh, someone needs to step up from the Democratic Party to take the lead. And right now, it doesn't appear that Joe Biden's going to be it. And with Elizabeth Warren and her policies, I don't think she's going to win the, the nomination either. Uh, Joseph, uh, I think, uh, first of all, not, not, now I heard Derek at the end there. Joseph, that's the real deal here. That is, how do you impact a race? You impact it with those dollars. Again, running is, is nuts. Look, the field is set, okay? And, and let's be clear. Sestak, a whole bunch of other people, they're going to be going out. They're not going anywhere. The key, what's going to be happening, Real Healers, is that, look, the top three right now, Warren, Booted, uh, uh, Warren, Sanders, Biden. That's it. Bloomberg, you're not going to be in the top three. It's not going <laughs> to no, happen. No, he won't. He well, won't. it's not going to happen. But also, I think that that point is legit, and I think it needs to be made in, in one of these two guys' ears that, listen, why not take that money and drop it on get out the vote? Why not take that money and use it to lobby for repeal of some of these uh, voter ID laws? If you really think you look in the mirror and see a president, you know, reality check is going to be hard for you. And also, not to mention the fact that a lot of this cash that they're burning, you know, yeah, they find in their sofa cushions or whatever, you know, that's, that's all well and good. But do you really want to make an impact? And do you really think that the field is so bad? I mean, keep in mind, we had a, a Republican field that was almost as big, and we ended up with Donald Trump. I mean, and there were some, some very less reactionary people who ran in that primary, and we still ended up with somebody who, who was to the far right. So if the field is there, and if the field is set, and, and also keep in mind that the, that the primary is where you test these ideas. And if they go someplace, that's fine. If they don't, that's fine too. But to, to have a set field and try to disrupt that field because of an ego trip, I don't think that's a very wise use of money, especially could, when we're... Could he, could he possibly be the alternative or that moderate that the Democratic Party needs right now? Because that's no, what Joe Biden... Well, Joe, that's what Joe Biden was supposed to be. If Bloomberg wanted losing, to be helpful, he would losing. help to funnel some of this funding to congressional, to people who are running for Congress in some of these heated and contested seats. One of the reasons that we have Robin Kelly in my district in Illinois is because of the funding of Mike Bloomberg. We have to be certain that we are consistently fighting to protect a lot of the uh, a lot of the um, legislation that we're working towards, that Congress has worked towards, that has not been made um, that has not been made law through the Senate. And it would help to have some of these millionaires be able to fund those types of policies. Well, and Bloomberg is a moderate. Republican. I mean, he's not a moderate Democrat. Again, I heard his speech, and it was remarkable that this dude was talking at the DMC, DNC. It was very much a law and order hey guys, platform. guys, hold on one second. Remember, Mike Bloomberg's money made a huge difference in Virginia for those uh, gun control candidates. Again, that's where it makes sense. But but this whole idea is that, that you know, save a billionaire comes along. And let's also be real honest. We haven't talked about Derek. I want to go to you first. Okay. The real deal is... These billionaires. Oh, lost him. Lost you, baby. Where'd you go, Roland?
well, the billionaire is going to look after their. I think the, his point is the billionaire is going to look after their own. Yeah, yeah, but one thing about Bloomberg, I just I noticed it earlier today, he just became a uh, he he was a registered Republican until last year midterm elections. He registered as Democrat, but I think right now it's just as late in the game for him. But there has to be a middle ground with one of these candidates, because right now... But you don't think Klobuchar's in the middle ground? Well, I agree with you. This tells, us, yeah. this tells yeah. us more yeah. about yeah. the race than it does Bloomberg jumping in, because there are a lot of people who feel as though we don't necessarily have the moderate candidate who can win, but then we have another debatable point with we're seeing these huge fractions within the Democratic Party in and of itself, where you have these people who are left of the left, and you have these people who are trying to stay moderate. Then you have people who know that certain candidates aren't going to be able to get that diverse vote out, and they're not exciting people. So I think that that does leave room for folks who maybe on the fence who have the type of money to jump in to think, hey, you know, I could jump in and disrupt this. But why do you think he's doing this? I mean, does he really look in the mirror and see a president? I think he does. But I'm just looking at the field of candidates right now. No, no, but... Are, but they, even, a, are they a president? But, are either one of them the president? Yeah, but even apart from that, right, take, take the field and put it aside, right? What about Mike Bloomberg makes him a president? Beto looked in the mirror and thought that he was going to be one. So I'm not going to say that it's not something right. that, you know, people think of that probably don't have a snowball's chance in hell. But this guy has been on the fence about this four different yeah. times at this point. But did Donald Trump look himself in the mirror and say, I want to be president? Absolutely, he did. Okay, so, so did Bloomberg, to this point, he looks himself in the mirror, yo, I can do this. Uh, <laughs> I mean... Talk about, talk about the soft bigotry of low expectations. <laughs> I mean... I think that goes to your point, too. If we've seen another um, millionaire, whatever, whatever his financial status is, go through this point who didn't have any ounce of the political experience or the acumen that Mayor Bloomberg does, then why not throw your hat in? Especially when you feel like the field is, in certain, to a certain extent, wide open because he's watching the it polls. Is, he's watching the fact that people aren't necessarily resonating 100% behind any candidate right now. I would the, argue part of that is because it's really early. But, but, it, but yeah, I was going to say, it's the primary. I mean, we haven't had the first vote cast yet. We haven't had the Iowa caucuses yet. I mean, yeah, if he was going to run, he could have started way back when, because we knew pretty much who was running. I think and he the, assumed that Biden would have a much sure, stronger he did, yeah. than he... Everybody did. That, he would have a much no, I don't think everybody did. did. I think Biden is... He did. It was... Uh, I was just reading one of the article in the Post just a few minutes ago. He felt like that Biden would have been a solid candidate, but he's been sliding. For who? But that's kind of... I mean, you know, Biden is 0 for 2, right? <laughs> yeah, Biden is 0 for 2. I, I'm with you. I mean, yeah. and he flamed out in, in uh, uh, he flamed out after Iowa in, in 2008, and he flamed out before Iowa in, mm -hmm. two, in 2018. But we can't deny that there are people who felt like he was heir apparent, and heir apparent to that throne means that, you know, he carried the Obama legacy and he was going to have a certain amount of people in who backed him by the sheer basis of carrying the Obama legacy. It and I don't think that that was a false estimation. What we're seeing is that, you know, performance-wise, your performance still matters. And I do think that, you know, we do have to say something about it being early. And after Iowa, we're going to see some things shift for people who thought that they were doing really well right. who might not be doing really well. Right. Uh, a la right. Beto. Yeah. Kamala. Yeah. <laughs> Corey. But do, you, do, you, <laughs> but do, do you take anything from the fact that all the, all the candidates of color are polling in the single digits and can't get money? Is that like a thing? Absolutely. I think there's something to be said about that, and I know that we probably have a lot to say about it, but we do also have to take a break. There you go. <laughs>
They create safe places where children can learn and grow. They give parents peace of mind. They are helping raise the next generation. If anyone deserves a voice on the job, it's them. Because their voice is our children's voice. For too long you've been undervalued. For too long you have been overworked. Well, that stops today. Because you now have a seat at the table. In California, after 15 years of struggle and setbacks, it's finally happening. The governor recently signed historic legislation empowering 40,000 in-home child care workers with collective bargaining rights. These skilled professionals will now get the respect they've earned for the essential work they do. They will have the opportunity to stand together in a strong union. Child care providers take pride in their challenging work, and they are fiercely dedicated. Many stay open 24 hours a day to accommodate parents who do shift work. But some make as little as 5 to $8 per hour. And many are forced to rely on public assistance just to pay the bills each month. They deserve better. The kids whose lives they enrich deserve better. With collective bargaining rights, child care workers will be able to raise their pay, negotiating higher reimbursement rates and better benefits. They can get the tools they need to do their jobs even better. They can fix a broken system and move us closer to child care for all. This will be the largest organizing campaign in the country. Child care providers have been uniting and mobilizing with their co-workers across California since 2003. Now, at long last, they will have the freedom to form a union, to build power together, to speak up together for themselves and the families they serve. You want to check out Roller Martin Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. You want to support Roller Martin Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real as Roller Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roller Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. When you're live, changes happen and plot twists. I'm your host now. So a recent report released by the Justice Policy Institute shows that Maryland has a higher number of black prisoners than any other state. More than 70% of Maryland's prison population was black in 2018, compared with 31% of the state population. That rate is far higher than the next closest states, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Georgia. Joining us to talk more about racial disparities in prison is Mark Schindler, Executive Director of the Justice Policy Institute. Good evening, how are you? Pretty good. So Mark, we really want to know, um, I have a little bit of a deep dive into what the differences are in, in Maryland and why Maryland is ranking so high in this. 
Sure, it's a good question. So we looked at a couple of things, as, as you noted at the outset, we looked at the overall prison population uh, in Maryland and found that it had the, has the highest percentage uh, of African-Americans in, in the prison uh, compared to the uh, overall population in, in the state uh, related to any other state in the country, uh, as you said, leads both Mississippi, South Carolina, Georgia. Um, and we've been doing a lot of work in Maryland at JPI for about 20 years now. So this in some ways doesn't surprise us, but we thought it was important to highlight. Um, we also looked at a, at a particular subset of that population, and that's the people who are serving the longest terms, uh, longest sentences in Maryland. And we found that of the people uh, serving the longest terms, uh, there was a very high proportion of young African-American males. In fact, uh, the highest proportion in the country of those who went into prison when they were under the age of 25, which, which we refer to and others around the country are now referring to as the emerging adult population. And do you see um, any any levels of advocacy to help to not only raise awareness, but also um, to help people understand how detrimental this is? Because these numbers are really shocking. When I look at them and we compare them to some states across the country that we know have astronomical rates of African-Americans in prison, we don't think of Mississippi as some place that would ever be comparative to, to Maryland, a state that most people see as a lot more progressive. Um, what, what do you see on the ground in terms of people getting involved, pushing towards um, getting more action around and understanding of just how dire the situation is? Yeah, that's a terrific question. And you're right, Maryland uh, is viewed and views itself as, as a quite a progressive state. So to see these types of uh, racial disparities uh, is, uh, should be quite concerning. I think for for people in the state, and there's been a lot of advocacy going on for uh, for quite a number of years in Maryland on a whole range of issues uh, in the justice system. That includes uh, trying to uh, reduce the the use of cash bail and the pretrial system uh, to the other end of the system, looking at uh, trying to safely uh, release uh, older uh, folks who are incarcerated in Maryland's prisons. Right now, uh, tonight, as we sit here. Uh, there's almost a thousand people over the age of 60 in Maryland's prisons, and uh, uh, over uh, 3,500 uh, who are over the age of 50. Right, and these are people who pose very, very low risk uh, to public safety, but cost an extraordinary amount uh, to incarcerate. So there's been advocacy in that area as well. Uh, to try to uh, really pressure the state uh, to think about doing things a different way. As we move forward in criminal justice advocacy and watching organizations at the national level as well as in various states um, move towards our pretrial prevention and a lot of bail reform and issues of that uh, of that matter, do you think that it will reduce some of this prison population? I think it absolutely can uh, if we're serious about it, right? And so uh, there are plenty of examples, and a, a little-known fact uh, in this country is that the uh, population of young people in juvenile facilities across the country has decreased more than 50 percent over the last 12 years or so. Uh, so there's been very drastic reductions in the number of young people who are confined. Uh, still, there needs to be further reductions, but there are lessons learned uh, on the juvenile justice side that uh, we, we believe can be applied uh, to what's going on in the adult criminal justice system. And, and we should be able to reduce the number of people in, who are incarcerated quite substantially. Mark. Derek Holly, uh, I'm a resident of Maryland. I have a 17-year-old son who's in high school. He's a junior in high school. 
and we just recently had a conversation with him a couple of days ago just about he's starting to drive and what to do and what he shouldn't do when he's pulled over by the police. Um, in the study that you guys just found, was there any particular reason or any type of conviction that stood out more that had our young black males incarcerated in Maryland more so than any place else? That's a really good question. And, uh, you know, I, I feel for you having to have that conversation <laughs> with your son. Um, you know, in, in, not necessarily in this report, but we've done a lot of research more broadly, both in Maryland and nationally, that, that looks at those issues of how uh, uh, people of color, particularly African-Americans, are treated differently uh, in the system. Uh, in, in this report, what we saw is that uh, young black males under the age of 25 uh, are, are disparately uh, incarcerated to, to extremely long terms. Uh, and so in some ways, as I, as I just mentioned, Maryland has uh, a very high number uh, of uh, what we refer to as the geriatric population in prison. And when we think about uh, the prison population, geriatric is anybody over the age of 50. Uh, so I would be considered geriatric because I'm over the age of 50. Uh, but the reason that that age is used is because we see that people age quite quickly when they're incarcerated. So Maryland has a very high number of 50, 60, 70. In fact, it was even just reported this this week by the Baltimore Sun that there's five people in Maryland's prisons who are over the age of 80, clearly posing no public safety threat at all. Um, and, and what we are advocating for is really to, to uh, think about how we can best use resources, right? So there's these very high number of older people who don't need to be incarcerated but cost a lot. Uh, if we can safely reduce no, those number of people, take those savings and do a better job with young people in the criminal justice system, not through incarceration, right, but through making more investments in being able to supervise them in the community and provide opportunities and supports in the community, uh, we can have much better outcomes, much safer communities uh, at, at lower cost. And so there are things that we can do that would prevent these young people from going in uh, for quite long, long terms. Because what we're seeing is these young people who go in for long terms, in Maryland, they become the geriatric population, right? Because they're serving very lengthy sentences. Joe Williams, uh, I have a question as well. I mean, what sort of crimes are they being incarcerated for, number one? And uh, number two, how did we get here? Yeah, that's a, that, that's a great question. You know, the crimes that we're looking at actually are, are fairly serious crimes, right? So they are uh, assaultive-type behavior, um, whether that's robbery or, or more serious, where you would get uh, up to 10 years or more. So we're not talking about uh, the, the least serious crimes. Uh, that said, and it's very important, we've done work in, in, this, in this area sort of delving more deeply. What's really important when we think about uh, how we respond to violence in our communities is we have to look at the risk that a person uh, poses looking forward uh, in, terms of, in terms of the behavior and other risk factors. And we shouldn't me measure that just by the offense. Right. What, what we typically do is we assign a, a set of years to an offense and we don't look any further. It doesn't mean that people shouldn't be held accountable and doesn't mean that punishment to some degree is, is, is not uh, appropriate. And we also have to be mindful that there's been somebody harmed in many of these cases. Uh, but what's happened is our system has gotten so out of whack. Right. It used to be 
years ago that a sentence of 10, 15, or 20 years was considered quite a long time. Uh, now we have sentences of 30, 40, 50 years and more, uh, which are being considered normal, right? So we've really changed what's considered normal uh, in our justice system. And we would suggest the reason that's been allowed to happen is because uh, these sentences are being posed disproportionately on people of color. Uh, I would suggest that if, if most of the people who were incarcerated for long periods of time in Maryland look like me, uh, white, white people, that we wouldn't have these very long sentences. We would figure out another way to do it uh, that wouldn't result in people being incarcerated so long. Thanks, Mark. And we are running short on time, but I did have one question that I'm hopeful that you can answer quickly. It's going sure. to be um, related to risk assessment tools. Um, it, obviously, you know what risk assessment tools are, but for, for our audience, risk assessment tools help to um, help to set the basis of how criminals are actually viewed and whether or not they should be released into the public. In many cases, these tools have been used and have been cited as being used incorrectly and have weighed more heavily on African Americans than they have on other populations. What do you think is the effect that the risk assessment tools in, in Maryland have had in terms of increasing this prison population? Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent question and one that we need to look at much more closely. Uh, there's no question that risk assessment tools uh, have been found, not all of them, but can be found to be racially biased. And when used incorrectly, can absolutely exacerbate uh, the disparate impact on, on people of color, particularly African Americans. What, what needs to happen, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have risk assessment as part of the decision making within our system, but it should be just one data point, right? It should be just one piece of information that is considered, and it ha we have to be very careful that the uh, information that's used for risk assessment is not uh, biased in terms of the racial impact. And that, that is something challenging to do, but we have to do the hard work to do it, make sure that we're checking about how things are being applied. At the end of the day, the decision should be made by, by human beings, not by risk instruments, but it is information that at least should be considered. Absolutely, and thanks so much, Mark. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. According to a press release from the Justice Department, Bobby Paul Edwards received a 10-year prison sentence after he pleaded guilty to one count of forced labor. Edwards, the owner of J&J Cafeteria in Conway, South Carolina, forced John Christopher Smith to work extensive hours at the restaurant. Prosecutors said that Edwards would subject Smith to physical and emotional abuse when the victim made a mistake or failed to work fast enough, and he would beat him with belts, fists, pots, and pans at times. Edwards was also ordered to pay $272,952,000 in restitution to Smith, who was mentally challenged. Now we're going to hear from our panel on why this is a problem, how this happened in America, and how we could stop this from happening in the future. I think the bigger question is how did it happen? And did this guy not have any family members or anybody that a brother, a sister, someone who could step in at some point and see that this was taking place? And for it to go on so long, it just, it, I'm just, I'm confused how it happened and how it took place for as long as it did. Well, I think that one of the reasons that, that occurs to me is that he's a disposable person, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we have people who are mentally disabled all the time. I mean, they're wandering around on the streets every day, on, they're on the metro, and these are people who are not being tracked. They're, they're disposable people. You know, they disappear. It's like they never even existed. Um, so I, I can understand intellectually how it happens. Sure. How it happens in the United States is another question entirely, right? But even more than that, 
20 years of this man's life, and he gets $272,000. million. $272,000, was it? Yeah, $272,000, <laughs> and, and only 10 years in jail? I mean, it's, it's absurd. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a certain level of frustration there. I, I, I appreciate your point on this being a population that people don't necessarily always follow up on, check up on, and really pay much attention to. Which is why, which is why he abused him in the first place, because he knew nobody would check on him. And I think that that's something that we have to remember, especially with those who are disabled, those who have mental health issues and all of these other things. I personally have an older brother who has a developmental disability. Even though he is 36, he has the mental capacity of a 12-year-old. So when you're talking about people who are often employed in, in restaurants like this or right. organizations that literally seek to employ those who many times have these developmental or other disabilities, they do so under the code of they're helping them with their, you know, with their development. They're helping them to actually maintain a job. Sometimes they do not yeah. treat them well. And I think that this is a very egregious case. But there, this happens, not well, maybe not the slavery aspect of what was happening here, but those levels of abuses at various levels happen across the country every day for those of the disabled population. See, I, and again, I understand how this, this, this population can sometimes be, you know, not no, no one's following up on them, that kind of thing. But it wasn't just him. It wasn't just the guy, the worker, but it was also the, the employer. And so for no one to intervene for 10 years and see all this taking place, I'm just wondering what else is happening in South Carolina right now. Well, there you go. That was, that was going to be my next, my next point, is this is the guy who got caught, right? This is the one we know about. And probably somewhere else in America, probably somewhere else in South Carolina or even the South, there's another case like this that's happening. And we've had at least two of them in the last 10 years that I can think of. So this is the one we know about. And it's, it's uh, part and parcel because they're not checking up on it. You know, they aren't having uh, social service agencies have been cut to the bone, so they don't do due diligence like they used to. And that is also part of the problem, is that we don't have the staff mm. to make sure that people like these don't, people like this man don't get abused. It's unfortunate. And thankfully we have this case that has been highlighted here, and I'm hopeful that it will get highlighted in other news programs as well, because people need to know that this goes on. I don't think that there is a, a logical push to see things change when people aren't aware of what's happening. And um, I, I agree with your point that if... If it's happening in South Carolina, it's happening in other places in the country. And we need to make sure that people are willing to stand in guard and be able to fight for it as well. In a Washington Post op-ed entitled The Ugly Lie About Black Voters and People to Judge, writer Jonathan Capehart reminds readers that African Americans have evolved on LGBTQ equality just like everyone else. According to the Pew Research Center, only 29% of blacks supported same-sex marriage in 2009. Ten years later, a majority, 51%, now does. Sure, that's lower than any other ethnic group, but not significantly so. Also citing that gap contributes to the intellectual laziness on this matter, especially while ignoring other relevant data points. So is black homophobia even a thing? <laughs> Absolutely, it's a thing. <laughs> and I'm not, you know, you can look at the Pew Research and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think in this poll, they only had a small number of black people that they, you know, they polled for this. And, um... Uh, You're talking about the focus group. Right, the, fo yeah. the focus yeah, group. Yeah. What was it, 14 people? Yeah, it was a very small very small sample. What kind of results are you going to get for 14 people? I mean, the two of us are going to disagree on something, right? So to say that, you know, to, to use a, 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 a pool of 14 people and to put this kind of research out, I think it's just false and misleading. Well, I think that, 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 that there are a couple things going on. The first is that, yeah, it was a very small sample size, and that sample size does not speak for the entire African-American diaspora, right? This is just a small group of people. Does homophobia exist? In certain instances, yes, it does. Is it as widespread as it used to be? The numbers say it's not. Um, but the second thing that occurs to me is that when it comes to politics, 
black people will vote for a three-headed alien if that three-headed alien stands for <laughs> voting rights, affirmative action, and can help them get ahead and put this, 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 this nonsense behind us of, 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 of Trump. I mean, black people tend to vote in their interest. They do not know Pete Buttigieg, number one. Number two, what they know about him, they've heard about him, kind of perhaps on the periphery. Number three, he really hasn't done a broad introduction of himself to black America. So, yeah, it's understandable that a small focus group would feel this way. But I think the larger point is that he has to introduce himself and demonstrate why people should vote for him. Not just the fact that he's, that he's a gay white man, but the fact that he is going to do something to improve their lives. Absolutely. And with that, we actually have Roland back. All right, folks, so we lost our signal here, but I'm back. Okay, let me, let me deal with this issue here. How is P Pete Buttigieg polling across the country? Low as hell. Okay, let's just be real clear, okay? Let's be real clear. There are black people who have run for school boards in America who have gotten more votes than Pete Buttigieg did. You're trying to go, you're trying to go from being the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who has never gotten, let me just be clear, and again, I'm hating on Pete Buttigieg, I'm stating facts. Pete Buttigieg has never gotten more than 8,000 votes in elected office. 8,000. So we're talking about being a small town mayor who wants to be president of the United States, okay? White people don't know Pete Buttigieg. This ain't got jack to do with him being gay. Look, let's look at the polling numbers. Kamala Harris, she ain't gay. What is she polling at? <laughs> Cory Booker, he ain't gay. What is he polling at? Sure? Julian Castro, he ain't gay. What the hell is he polling at? Sure? And so this is that BS game that folks want to play because they want to uh, say, oh, black people are more homophobic than white people. White folks go to church too. The bottom line is nobody knows this guy. And so you are not going to get the black vote if we don't know you. On this show, I have said, as Senator Kamala Harris and Senator Cory Booker made a mistake in not doing a full course blitz to black people in the last three years. You can't assume just because you're black and you're running for president, black people are going to vote right. for you. No, black folks know Joe Biden more nationally, more than they know Senator Kamala Harris. Facts are facts. And so this is the silliness that we play. And black people need to say to white people, these white media reporters, you're not going to sit here and try to uh, frame us this way. That's BS, Joseph. It's BS. Well, it is, but it's also standard operating procedure, right? I mean, when has this not been the case that there has been a candidate that has gotten a buzz or has been slightly different, but you go to black people and they, and they either collectively shrug because they don't know who this person is or they gravitate to somebody who they do, and it's, ah, you know, I remember stories about uh, Barack Obama. Is he black enough for black people? Well, because they didn't know him. So I think that to your point about the fact that he hasn't introduced himself to America writ large, I think that plays a large role in here. And it's also very easy to vilify African Americans for things or project onto uh, black people some things that even white people are feeling. Look, I, I don't care what they, what, what, they, they got to say, Alicia. Pete Buttigieg knows, knows he has an issue. And look, I've been talking to the Buttigieg campaign. I've had a conversation with him. He knows the issue here. And, and here's what happened here. The Buttigieg campaign said, hey, we didn't release this focus group. Somebody did. And so, again, this whole notion that... And, and, and here's the other piece. Here's the other piece. Let me just go ahead and say this. 
Black people in South Carolina are not the only black people who are voting. Okay, yes, it's a critical state, but how is he polling among black people in Maryland, in Georgia, in, uh, in North Carolina? And so we, what we have to do is, is to tell people, you're not going to play this game with us trying to sound black folks as more homophobic than anybody else. The reality is, guess what? It was a whole bunch of white folks who didn't support same-sex marriage. Let's just be real. Right. Okay, as simple as that. So Amisha, he knows he's got some damn work to do. No, I, I think that that's absolutely correct. And I love the point that you made about um, Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, who also are not necessarily polling that strongly in, in a democratic demographic that is their own. But I think that for Mayor Pete, there's something else here. Um, as somebody who created the Douglas plan, which I personally think is a great plan, he hasn't necessarily marketed and be, been able to campaign on it in the black community in the way that he should have. When you create a campaign, when you create a campaign initiative specific towards black people, economic development, educational infrastructure, um, housing supports, health care, you should have an infrastructure around how you're going to talk about that to black people. I think that one of the hardest things that his campaign is now facing is that you can't necessarily, you're not going to make it in this election or be Trump unless you have black support. And they may be coming around to this ideology a little bit too late, but putting it off and saying that this is because black people don't support LGBTQ individuals is completely ridiculous because I don't think that there is any more upset about or angst against LGBTQ right. community individuals in the black community than there is outside of the black community. There are religious sects and religious people of all races and demographics who may carry within themselves some idea of a, a lesser approach or a lesser appreciation for it. But I think that overall, it has to do with what policies will work for black people. Black people are going to vote for the policies that help move our community forward. And at the end of the day, if you're not able to transmit those, to have conversations about those, to appear that you are moving along with the black community to help move things forward and to help to bridge a lot of the gaps that we see in a lot of our economic situations across this country, you're going to have a hard time. Black people will Okay, now, 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 hold on. Let, let me introduce another topic that we have seen uh, take place this week, and that is all of these folks on social media saying there's this erasure happening with Senator Kamala Harris. Uh, they say that Warren is getting all this attention uh, and that people are ignoring Senator Kamala Harris. They talk about the fact that Higher Heights, a group uh, represents 90,000 black women uh, who endorsed uh, Senator Kamala Harris. And then you had another group of about 100 activists who endorsed uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Okay, Joseph, I'm gonna go to you first, then I'm gonna go to Amisha, then Derek. Here's the thing that I will say to the people. This is the difference. The group that endorsed Senator Warren is a group of 100 activists who are active on social media. Even though a larger group, Higher Heights, endorsed Senator Kamala Harris, that was their board of directors. What should have happened with the rollout is that Higher Heights should have said to all of their members, we are endorsing Senator Kamala Harris, flood the zone talking about Senator Kamala Harris. And so I think people need to, and I, people all of a sudden talk about erasure. But look, the Senator Harris's campaign has been up and down. It's been like a roller coaster, whereas Warren has been steadily building. And so, look, the responsibility to maximize attention with your endorsements ain't on the people on social media. It's on the candidate and their campaign. Joseph. Two months ago, she was as hot as can be. She had the moment with Joe Biden. She smacked him upside the head about busing. And then she was everywhere, right? And to go from everywhere to nowhere, that's kind of on the campaign a little bit, I think. I mean, there you go. also, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the fact that uh, 
all the, I mean, there, there's a different issue that, 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 that's been a kind of a bug in my bonnet, which is about how all the candidates of color are polling low, but she had her moment, yeah. and she needs to be more consistent, and that was the knock against her going in. Does she have the stamina? Does she have the, the, the approach? Does she have the organization for the long haul? Right. And I will say also one other thing is that we have not had a single vote cast yet. What I've been hearing is that her ground game is pretty good. Will it be good enough for her to win Iowa? We don't know. The proof is in the pudding. But I do think that it, that that uh, the rollout should have been a lot more visible. If you've got that many African-American women who are voting a woman of color, that should have been everywhere. And Amisha, and, and that's what this boils down to. If you study both of these campaigns, this ain't got jack to do with who's black or who's a woman or who's white. The reality is the Warren campaign has been a lot steadier, a lot smoother in terms of how they have been driving their narrative. The Harris campaign has not. Look, she her biggest Achilles heel was the fact that she was a prosecutor. There you go. She didn't release a criminal justice plan until the Monday, the middle of September, mm -hmm. the week of the TSU debate. You went five <laughs> months and didn't release a criminal justice plan. And so, a perfect example, this week, okay, she releases her education plan. All right, 10 hours in school. I'm sorry. No. Where's the live stream? No, 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 but follow me here. Okay? Where's the Where's the live stream of the summit of educators? Where, where, where's the event with teachers, with principals, with parents, with students? If that was going to be your key issue this week, how did you not flood the zone with it? I'm sorry. That's on the campaign. And so I hear people, but they got to stop all this. Oh, my God, they're trying to erase the black woman. No, you can't erase yourself. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you 100%. I think that there's an easy trope for her to use to say that, you know, things are harder. You know, they are looking at her differently. She's being weighed differently in the media and in the spotlight because she's a black woman. Fact of the matter is she has not run a steady campaign. She's run a campaign that has been flimsy at times that has been even worse at others. And I agree with you. When you release something that is as specific as this and, and as large as this education proposal she just did, we're coming off of a 10-day teacher strike in Chicago. Can we not have teachers who are actually on those picket lines be voices for this? Can we not have the the CEO of the National Teachers Union actually be there. Because at the end of the day, she that she endorsed that actual plan. But if you don't endorse it in terms of commercials, if social media doesn't hear it, nobody really cares. Kamala's campaign released a statement, but that was it. So I think that part of this is them not really having the campaign infrastructure that actually makes sense at the level she's trying to run at. And there is no comparison for me right now between her campaign and Warren's. One was out of the gate. I'm a winning horse, and I'm going to keep striving until I get there. The other one was kind of teetering from the beginning, had a moment of shine with Joe Biden in the second debate, and has completely fallen apart ever since. So I think that right now, you know, she's smart to restructure. She's letting go of a lot of people. She's deciding that, you know, she needs to have different top brass staff. But it may or may not be too late. Derek, at the end of the day, when you run... You are gonna you're gonna deal with bumps, okay? Warren dealt with the Pocahontas bump uh, at the beginning of her campaign, but it's been a steady bill. All of these people, and let me say this again, to all these people who are out here saying, "Oh, uh, Warren is the white woman getting more attention," let me remind you, the first two town halls, the two not the first two town halls, of the first town halls 
that were on CNN and MSNBC, the two highest were involving Senator Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm. Her campaign did not build on that. That's the problem, folks. And I think they now are trying to correct that. The question is, can they do it? The next debate, Derek, is November 20th. She is going to be at Tyler Perry Studio in Atlanta. Let me be clear. She's got to come out a hell of a lot stronger than she was in the TSU debate. She's going to have to come out smoking hot in November 20th debate. That's what she needs to do. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think right now she could possibly be campaigning for vice president. Um, you know, and so I look at her, how she's polling right now. She's shutting down different offices. She just shut down New Hampshire, and she shut down a couple of other uh, offices right now. And I just don't think, I look at her as a prosecutor, Roland, and I look at her record in terms of what she did out there in terms of just locking up uh, African Americans when she targeted them, uh, the parents of truant students. And so when I look at her, her record that way, and it's not just her dropping the ball with her campaign, it's also her record. And I think a lot of people have looked at that over the, over the last few months, which has also caused her to have a, a lapse in the polls right now. Hey, all I'm saying, all everybody out there talking about erasure, no, that's on the campaign. You got to do what you got to do. Uh, first of all, folks, let me thank uh, Derek, Joseph, and Amisha uh, for being uh, with us today. Sorry we lost the signal there. Uh, again, we are here uh, at the uh, second annual Life Lux Jazz Festival. Uh, taking place here in uh, Cabo. And so what's happening right now is, let me step aside. What's happening right now is uh, Mark Curry, he's out here somewhere. Uh, he's walking around. Uh, he's he's walking around, uh, sitting here, uh, talking to folks. Uh, you see him right there. And so we've been uh, we've been here since yesterday. Uh, I'm going to zoom in, uh, Mark, right here. So you see what he's doing. But again, folks, we've got a great audience out here. Uh, 14, uh, 14 uh, days we're here. 14 days. I know I'm zooming out real fast. Uh, but uh, 14 days, 14 acts, 14 acts, three days. If you want to watch the live stream, folks, what you should do is go to gfntv.com. And you can actually see the live stream, uh, $10.99 uh, for that live stream pass. And so uh, that's what uh, you should do. And so, folks, uh, it has been great. Uh, I'm going to be uh, back in studio uh, next week. We've got the HBCU debate taking place. Excuse me, the HBCU rally taking place on the campus of, uh, excuse me, outside Indianapolis at the state capitol, trying to fight for funding for those four HBCUs. And so uh, we are uh, so glad to be here. we got a lot of things that are going on. We appreciate all of your support. If you want to support Roland Martin Unfiltered, uh, all you got to do is go to RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. And then what you can do is you can join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every single dollar that you give goes to support uh, what we do as we, of course, uh, cover the issues that matter to you. And so uh, we always end the show. We always end the show by rolling the credits of the people who have supported us. And so you can give via Cash App. You can be a, a PayPal or register as well. And so look forward to seeing all of you. Uh, and so I'm going to go enjoy the concert uh, here with all of our people. We're going to have a good time. Uh, and so... Thank you so very much. Again, gfntv.com. Watch the live stream. So uh, I got to go. Y'all have an absolutely fabulous weekend. This is an early birthday present for me. Uh, I turned 51 on November 14th, so we're about to go have some fun here. And so y'all take care. Have a great one. Peace. No. Holla.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.